taken my book. <laughs> Thank you, Wayne. Good morning. My name is Francine. I'm an alcoholic. Is it possible for me to pull this down a little without it interfering? Because sometimes it, I'm short even with heels on. Okay. Is it working now? Great. You can't see? <laughs> Just want you guys to know that I am a real alcoholic. I drink seltzer the way I used to drink booze. You know, this is for, for those of you that hear it on tape, this is a two-liter bottle. And he was right. I got five bottles yesterday, and that's only for two days of being here. So uh, I drink a lot of water. I used to drink a lot of booze. And uh, I don't drink anymore. And I don't drink anymore through the grace of God and you guys. I want to say thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me back to Texas. I absolutely love this state. I absolutely love it. And, you know, there must be a lot of Texans that love me because they keep inviting me back again and again and again and again. And even though I've never been to El Paso, I've been to this state so many times. And, it's, you know, it, I've had the privilege of speaking in a lot of places around the country and a few places outside. And some places are warmer than other places. And I must tell you, every time I come to Texas, like Oklahoma, I feel like I am so loved. I feel like I'm so loved. So I just want you to know I really appreciate it. it. It makes such a difference because it doesn't matter if you're a speaker up here or not. If you don't feel connected or at one with the group, it's like, well, what's the point? And for me, my purpose is to be at one with you. That's what you've given me in the 18 years that I'm sober, and that's what I try to pass back on to you. So thank you. I want to thank the committee for, uh, for inviting me to be here this weekend. And in particular, I want to thank Beverly. Where'd she go? Yeah. Beverly, especially because of her patience and her tolerance with me. I was invited to speak here about two years ago, and then I went and changed the rules, and I moved a year ago. I moved from Los Angeles to Marin County, up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And what happened is the telephone company and the postal service failed to continue to let people know where I was. So all these people that had tried to contact me or had invited me places, they had no real way of connecting with me. And you know, it's, it's really about what you've taught me in this program. I had to take responsibility for the follow-up. And I picked up the phone and searched and searched. and. You know, and I got a hold of Beverly, and, and we had a, there was a little stuff going on as a result of the changes, but you know what? She stuck with me. She stuck with me. And I, well, you know, for me, it's those little things that make a difference today, and, and so here I am. So thank you really so much for that. I uh, have the privilege of being on the podium this weekend with so many speakers that I love. So many speakers that I absolutely love. Speakers that I've had the privilege of being with a lot. And some who I, I had the privilege of hearing even before I started coming up here, you know, which is the real good treat for me that, that your inspiration has allowed me to be up here this morning. But uh, in particular, cricket was one of the reasons that I came in early yesterday. I don't often get to travel on a Friday anymore just because it's, it's too much of a hassle, business, a lot of things make it a very, very difficult. But when I knew cricket was going to speak Friday night, I made sure my schedule accommodated that. And I have to tell you, I was so grateful. I'm, I'm so grateful to you. I'm so grateful to, to many of the people in this program who have come before me, who have shown me by example. And I feel especially privileged to have followed both Anne and, and Cricket uh, over the weekend. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that wonderful story, The Velveteen Rabbit. 
if you have it, simply put, it's a story that talks about being real. It's a story that talks about how we become real the more used and the more useful we become. And I never knew what that was about. I was never useful. I was used a lot, if you ask me, but I was never useful. You know, I never was really of service. And um, the two women that have come before me today and last night to me are like that velveteen rabbit. They are so real. And as a result, they give me permission to be able to stand up here and cry from the podium, to be really honest and let you see who I am without having to pretend to be someone else. And, you know, for somebody like me, for whom image is everything, believe me, it's easier to hide behind the mask and let you see exactly what I want you to see. But because of my role models today in this program, women just like you, you know, I get to stand up here and tell you the truth. Good, bad, indifferent. But I get to tell you exactly who I am. I, I get to let you step right inside of my soul and visit for a moment. That's what I get to let you do. And so for that, I'm so very grateful. The other thing that was very special for me yesterday, last night when I came in, was having the opportunity to be a part of the, the countdown. I, uh, I always love that because there's something so magical about being in a room where you see all of these alcoholics together, where the spotlight is on us as a whole, not me as a speaker or another speaker, but the spotlight's on all of us. And it was awesome to see that one woman who had a day, and then the guy with four days, and then lots of other people in between, tons of three-year-olds standing up. It was really powerful. And this morning, I, I met a woman who's got like a month and a half, and she's 17 years old. I mean, you know, it warms my heart when I get to see that. But for me, the real gift last night, I mean, the absolute real gift, was when I saw people stand up after I sat down. See, sometimes I go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I have the most sobriety of anybody in the room. And while 18 and a half years of sobriety is a long time by some people's standards, it is just a flash or a flicker of my eye. It's just a drop in the bucket. You know? And I don't ever, ever, ever want to forget in this program that, that life doesn't end at 18. And sometimes I feel that way when I'm in a room and 18 is like the longest length. And so last night when I saw these people who stood up after I sat down, it was so awesome. You know, it was, about, it was about passing on that legacy. It was about reminding me of why I'm really here and why sometimes even when I don't feel like getting up, getting on a plane or, or being of service even in my home group or talking to my sponsees or going to a detox, it reminds me of why even if I don't want to do that stuff, why I do it anyway. Because there are old timers that continually show up and let me see in the flesh that this is the deal and that it gets better and it gets better and it gets better. I'm so grateful for you guys and, and I love you so much. You know, without knowing you, I, my heart loves you because because of you, I'm here. Because of you, I get to live the kind of life today that, that I never even imagined possible. Today, because of you, I get to be the kind of woman that I never even wanted to be when I first got sober. You know. <laughs> True. You know, I get to be the kind of woman that people used to make attacks at, verbal attacks, and say, who does she think she is, Miss AA? You know. And so a day at a time, I get to live this vision. Plus, I get to stretch far beyond my comfort zone, and then I get to stretch just a little bit more. And that's what my story's about. My story is about hope, it's about inspiration, it's about dreams, it's about 
It's about healing. It's about forgiveness. It's about love. It's about sobriety. It's about sobriety. It's about how one day at a time, Alcoholics Anonymous and each and every one of you in it picked me up and dusted me off and taught me how to live the life that I live today. You know, I, I think it's kind of interesting that many of the women that we put on the circuit in AA are women who were high school dropouts, had very colorful past, they slept with all your husbands, and they were like of the lowest of the low variety. You know, seems like that's, that's who we seem to make circuit speakers, and you know what, that makes me feel really comfortable up here. Because <laughs> that's my story. You know, that's my story. Come from the lowest of the low. Sometimes I feel like today I'm like that phoenix that arises from the ashes that gets to stand before you, this incredible being, this absolutely incredible being. Last month I turned 45 years old, and, uh, you know, I've literally grown up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have literally grown up here. I came here when I was 20. I initially came here when I was 25. I got sober when I was 26. And by most people's standards, 26 is like, um, it was old. Well, for some people, it's old. For some people, it's young. Depends on where you sit. Um, but, you know, at 26, I was, a, I was a child, but I was an old spirit. I had... I had done more things in my life than most people would ever imagine, and I was so tired by the time I got here. So tired. And you created an incredibly safe resting place for me. But I was born 45 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, we do have tissues. Thank you. Well, you knew all the women were coming up here, huh? Look at this. I was born 45 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, I don't remember a lot about those early days. What I do remember is that as a kid, probably not unlike some of you, I grew up just hating who I was, just absolutely hating who I was. I hated being in this skin. I hated being in this body. I hated coming from my family. I, I hated everything about me. You know, who I was was not who I wanted to be. I hated being black. I hated being a girl. I hated being a southerner. Everything. And at that time, I used to have a very strong southern drawl, if you can possibly imagine it. If you listen closely, I still have a tendency to say y'all sometimes, you know. But I, I hated who I was at that time in my life so much. And, um, you know, there was, a, there was a piece inside of me that desperately wanted to be somebody else. Didn't know who I wanted to be, but I know being here, being me, was not the answer. I wanted to be anybody other than Francine. I found myself at a very early age escaping through anything I could possibly find, through books, through movies, through music, long before I found men and drugs, you know, those early things, books and music. And boy, was it incredible just to be able to escape for a moment through something different. You know, there was, um, and I like to talk about this very often because this movie describes, or this segment describes how I felt about myself as a kid more than anything I could possibly say to you. There was a movie that came out maybe about 10 years ago, I don't even remember at the time, and it was called Separate But Equal. And I had the good fortune of seeing it again a month ago. On Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, they showed this movie again, and I was reminded of how powerful it was for me. 
It was a movie about <clears throat> the Supreme Court's decision in um, Brown, the Brown v. Board of Education case. It was about segregating or integrating schools in the United States. But in this particular movie, they were trying to understand the impact of segregation on very, very small children. They were trying to understand how segregation affects self-esteem, which ultimately affects the way you view your world. And in this TV movie, they had all these little kids in a room, and they were asking them a battery of questions, one question after another. And in responding to a question, they asked each one of the children to choose between one of four dolls that was sitting in front of them. They had a little black boy doll, a little white boy doll, a little black girl doll, and a little white girl doll. And then they came to this little black girl, and they didn't ask her anything, no trick questions. They didn't ask her anything difficult. They just simply asked her to choose of all four of those dolls the doll for her that was the ugliest of the bunch. That's all they said. They said, pick out the ugly doll, the dolls that are on this table. And I can tell you, without hesitating, without blinking her eye, without thinking for a moment, this little girl grabbed a hold of the doll that didn't look like you, didn't look like you, didn't look like you, didn't look like anybody in this room. It was the doll that looked exactly like herself. Because for her, that was the ugliest image she could possibly imagine, her own. And you know, again, I saw this movie when I was sober a while, and then I saw it again last month, and it took me back to that feeling I had as a kid, like that. I knew exactly what she thought. I knew exactly how she felt. Because you see, when I looked at myself in the mirror, that was the image, the last image that I wanted to see. I didn't want to see myself. I hated who I was. I used to use razor blades to scrape off my skin, and I'd use bleaching cream to try to take off my color because I couldn't stomach being in this body. I couldn't stomach it. And yet this was the only body I had. And so for me, my earliest escape truly came through anything outside of myself. And in the beginning, because my mom was a, was a librarian, we used to have tons of books in my house. It was so cool. I mean, we had books everywhere. In every room, on every wall, there were like reams and reams of books. And sometimes I'd take a book off the shelf, and it wasn't because I was just trying to be a smart kid. It was simply because when I opened up those binders and those pages, for me, was someplace safe. It was a place that, even if it was just for a moment, I didn't have to think about who I was or how I looked or how I didn't fit in. I didn't have to, to think for a moment that I was a round peg in a square hole. Because for that moment, I fit in. For that very moment. And it was absolutely wonderful. I, I read and I watched movies. and. And movies was a, watching old movies were great for me. That was a fabulous escape. I liked those women like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and Barbara Stanwyck and Susan Hayward. Those women who had a cigarette in one hand and they had a glass in the other hand and they didn't take too much garbage off anybody, you know. <laughs> and I needed that because here I was, this little kid with this huge hole in her gut, and I needed something to cling to. And you know what? When I watched Betty Davis, I was powerful. I was strong. As much as I hate to admit it, I learned a lot about being a female by watching Barbara Stanwyck and Susan Hayward, and Betty Davis taught me how to smoke cigarettes, you know. I remember watching All About Eve, which was one of my most favorite movies, and I still remember today. She's walking up that staircase with that long, sexy cigarette holder talking about it's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> and she only known. <laughs> 
It was so cool. I mean, I learned. I used to stand in the mirror, and this is so embarrassing, but it's true. I'd stand in the mirror, and I'd puff circles, and I'd choke in between, of course, and then I'd puff, and then when my mother would come home, I'd try to blow it and cover up the smoke, but for those that are smokers, you know that doesn't work. just makes it penetrate the room even more. But that was how I learned how to smoke cigarettes, you know. And likewise, I learned how to hold my glass with my pinky stuck out by watching Susan Hayward, who was my idol. I must tell you, after I watched Backstreet, I learned how to do a few other things that she learned how to do. You know? <laughs> she was definitely one of my role models. You know, it's so amazing how we learn how to be who we are. You know, I, I learned also how to walk. That Betty Davis strut was one of my favorites. And in our apartment in New York, where I grew up, we used to have this um, full-length mirror in our bedroom. And I swear, this is the truth. I used to strut watching myself in the mirror with this Betty Davis strut. I mean, I learned how to behave by watching these people. And, you know, it wasn't a surprise that when I got sober, I would learn how to behave differently by watching you. Because I've always been impressionable. Always. I've always been so easily formed. I was easily formed back then, and thank God when I came to you, on some level I was willing to be impressionable, willing to learn. But it took a long time before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to go through a lot of stuff before I found my way to you. A lot of stuff. You know, and as I heard the women that cheered before me today and last night, you know, that's my story. I, you know, I didn't come in here as one of those women who, who sipped tea and, and, and never left the house. And I know that there are many who do, and that's wonderful. The gift of Alcoholics Anonymous is we come in in so many different ways. But when I first came in and I only saw women like that, I thought I didn't belong. And so I was so grateful to start hearing the women that, the women who compromised themselves. The women who lived colorful lives, if you will. You know, today I like to call it colorful, but there's some other words that people used to use to describe the way I lived for a long time, I know. But I had to come here and, and learn how to behave differently. I had to come here and, and learn how to be the woman that I am today. I um, drank and used from the age of 14 until the age of 26 when I literally crawled into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I crawled here. I crawled here with crutches and a cast on my leg because I couldn't get here any other way. You know, some of us are sicker than others and it takes whatever it takes to get us to come through those doors. I didn't just come walking through. I had to be beaten into a state of reasonableness to just make it to the front door. But thank God it happened. I uh, remember when I first came into this program, I read in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous those words, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And you know, I remember when I first read those words in the book, there was not one single person in the room that had to sit me down and say, Francine, let us explain to you what it's like for a woman to feel pitifully and incomprehensibly demoralized. Let us explain this to you. Nobody had to tell me about that. See, I knew what that felt like. I knew what it felt like to be a woman alcoholic that had compromised herself to the point that I didn't even realize what I was doing was a compromise. I knew what it felt to be a woman alcoholic who was so dirty, who felt so dirty on the outside as well as on the inside. I knew what it felt like to, to sell my soul to the highest bidder and sometimes not even the highest bidder. You know, I knew what it felt like to, to feel like 
Like this was the end, and yet I didn't even have the courage to take my own life. There were many a days I, I wished I wouldn't wake up. But I didn't have the courage to stop the insanity. I knew what that felt like. You know, there were times when I would come home from doing whatever it was I was doing out in the streets of New York, and I would stand under the shower, and the water would just beat down on my skin, and, and I would scrub and scrub trying to get that dirt off. And I know that there are some of you in here that understand that dirt I'm talking about. That, not the surface dirt that we think we're talking about. You know, not the kind that you actually can take off with soap and water, but the kind of dirt that is deeply embedded on the inside. But see, I didn't know that that was the kind of dirt I was trying to take off. And so I'd be under the shower and I'd scrub and I'd scrub and I'd scrub my body and, and it would never come off. It would never come off. And sometimes I'd use lots of fragrance to try to cover up that stench because I knew it would work. Or I'd attach myself to the right man because I thought, well, if I'm with him, you don't have to smell or see me. You know? Or I'd wear the right clothes so that you could never see beyond my externals. I knew what that felt like. And yet a day at a time, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, you taught me that the cleansing process had to come from inside of me. That it wasn't about all those things on the outside. That it was about learning how to behave differently than I had ever behaved before. You told me that if I wanted to feel better about myself, I needed to start it, I needed to act better than I was acting. And that was a real foreign notion for me, I have to tell you. I've been one of those women for all my life, again, for whom image was everything. Everything. And I'm one of those women who always went into a relationship based on how I looked. My face, my body. So it was never about me being a woman of substance. It was always about me being some sort of object. And that was just fine, thank you. I liked it that way. You know, when you live in the darkness, you think that's the way to go. And that's how it was for me. I thought that was just the way it is. As a woman, I thought that's how you behave, that's how you live. I thought those feelings were normal to everyone who acted like I did. And you know what? They probably were to people who acted as I acted. In 1978, I was first introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in New York City. I don't know if I mentioned it. I might have invited. I moved to New York when I was six years old. Um, so I really grew up in New York. And um, I first came in in 1978. But, you know, I knew that this wasn't for me. I just knew Alcoholics Anonymous was not for me. I came in and... It was at the, the request of my therapist at the time who suggested, I might add, that I had an allergy to alcohol. Now, if you are an alcoholic of the very sick variety, which I have always been, then when somebody tells you you have an allergy to alcohol, you do what any self-respecting alcoholic would do. And so I ran off to an allergist. This is the truth. <laughs> this is the truth. The sicker, the more truthful, I tell you. I went to this allergist, and what they did was they gave me a, a test. And I'm told they still do this today. It's a, a big needle, a big head with four little needles. And they prick your arm to see if you have any kind of allergic reaction to anything. <laughs> I didn't have any allergic reaction to anything. If anything at all, I should have been allergic to my bad attitude and my bad behavior, but it didn't seem to work that way. And so I continued to drink and to use. But what happened is eventually the therapist suggested I actually go to an AA meeting. She actually got so bold after a while, and she suggested I go to AA. 
I continued to drink when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1978. And I am so grateful, so very, very grateful to the people who were here before me who did not tell me that I had to leave because I was drinking. I just need to say that for myself. You know, they knew I was on something. There's no question about it. Even though if you're new and you sometimes think you can sort of skate around that, if, you, if you're like me, you didn't think you could smell vodka through the pores. and You know, who knew? But uh, they knew. They knew. They knew I was on something. I mean, it wasn't difficult to distinguish dilated from con constricted pupils. It wasn't hard to smell vodka from the pores. It wasn't hard to just tell that you're on something. I mean, you know, they knew. But the truth is, they continued to love me and they continued to pray that the day would come when the light I would see. And you know, not everybody loves me. I just want you to know that too. There wasn't everybody that was so happy to see me and said, keep coming back. But fortunately, people who were doing the kind of service that I've since been, been privy to, excuse me, just kept, even if they didn't want to get too close, they kept praying that the day would come that I would change my attitude. They kept praying that the day would come when I'd want to be sober more than I wanted to be drunk. If there's anybody in this room this morning, and I would suspect there probably is at least one, because I have never, ever, ever in my life gone to an AA meeting where there's not somebody drinking or on drugs. I've never gone to a meeting. And so if you're in the room today and you're back there somewhere, I just want you to know I am so grateful you are here. I am so glad you're here. Better that you sit here this morning than be out there at 11 o'clock in a bar. Let me also say that if you're sitting in here this morning and you think we don't know, think again. <laughs> think again. Think again. I know, it's such a funny thing, alcoholics. But I'm so glad you're here. And you know, gratefully for me, thankfully for me, you kept loving me until I eventually could come in here and love myself. In 1978, when I first came in, before I came in, when I had been exposed to AA in New York, I did what, what, what you taught me, by the way, because I didn't even know too many words when I came in here. When I came in here, you taught me about a geographic. Now, if you're newly sober, if you don't know what a geographic is, let me explain for a moment. Geographic is where you think if you physically remove yourself from point A to go to point C, you think you left all your stuff back at point A. Well, surprise, it's not how it works. <laughs> I can't believe I thought that. I moved from New York to Las Vegas thinking I left all my baggage in New York. I took it right along with me in my fanny. I can assure you, I took it all with me. And when I got to Las Vegas, it was the devil in disguise. I took it all with me. It's virtually impossible to leave it. Because you know what? Wherever I am, I am. I went out to Las Vegas at the end of 1978 in search of my pot of gold. Because, you know, I was always looking for an easier, softer way. And I thought Las Vegas was it. It's interesting. Sometimes people say to me, Francine, but you went from the frying pan into the fire. From New York, the streets of New York, to the casinos in Las Vegas. And, you know, people have often said, but how could you get sober in Vegas? I mean, how could you? And, you know, all I can say is that when your number is up, it doesn't matter where you are. And lucky for me, it happened in a place as, with such a powerful AA community as Las Vegas, Nevada. 
And, you know, it had to be powerful to counteract all the stuff that was going on there. I mean, you could walk into a casino and get free booze. Free booze, just if you had a nickel standing next to a slot machine. They'd bring you booze. So I feel so blessed that that's where God took me. I would have never chosen that for myself. I moved out there in 78, and I continued to drink, even though I had been exposed to AA, but thank God for the exposure. Continued to drink and continued to use for about nine months. And then for me, and, and this is just for myself, you know, I truly believe when the first step talks about that act of providence, that for some of us has to intervene in order for us to get sober. I was on such a destructive path that there was no way in the world I would have made it here of my own volition. I would have never done it. And so what I believe, what I've come to believe today is that this most loving, most sweet God broke my leg in order to save my life. I got hit by a car in June of 1979, and to date, I don't have a clue what happened. I do not have a clue. What they told me when I was found in the street, I used to live on Paradise Road in Las Vegas. <laughs> Appropriately so. <laughs> I was found in the direction opposite from my house. And when they found me in the street, they never thought that I was going to live because I was just this limp body lying in the street. And when they realized I was going to live, they never, ever, ever thought I'd walk again. That's what the doctors told me at first. Because when they found me, my left leg was up behind my head and the bone had come straight through. You know, and today I walk with a limp. I don't hide my scar. I have a really unattractive tenant scar on my leg with a lot of hole marks where all that hardware was for almost my entire first year of recovery. I wear short skirts. I wear bathing suits. I wear shorts. I don't hide it. And, and very often people have asked me if I would ever consider cosmetic surgery because it's such an unattractive scar. I mean, it really is very ugly. And I can only tell you that just for today, just for today, I choose not to cover it up. You know, maybe the time will come in my recovery where I'll want to have a different leg. I don't know. But for today, every time I look at my leg, I'm reminded of the very high price I had to pay to stand before you right now. Forget about yesterday. I mean, right now. Everything I've done, everything I've done in the 45 years before this point has gotten me to where I am right now. And I had to go through all that stuff in my drinking and using to just be the kind of woman I am today, the kind of woman who walks with dignity. You see, today I know how to spell that word and I know how to define it. And that's not who I was when I crawled into this program in July of 1979. It's not who I was. And yet today I get to walk with my head up high no matter where I go. Even when I'm scared, I get to act as if my head goes up high, you know. And I also get to tell you that I'm afraid. See, that's the real good news. I get to, to walk with my head up high and I get to, to be really open and honest and vulnerable with you. I've learned how to be that person. I'd like to tell you that when I came into this program in 79 that I literally embraced Alcoholics Anonymous with open arms. You know, I'd like to tell you that because my story was so low and because I was such a low-bottom drinker that, um, you know, I just, I came in and I was really ready to do the right thing right away. You know, I'd like to tell you that. But as some of you that are probably sitting in here this morning, you know that no mere car accident is enough to stop you if you're on a mission. You know? <laughs> and it didn't stop me. I um, 
came in here in July, and, and you know, I, I sometimes, it makes me even more grateful for who I am today when I think about where I was when I got sober. Because truly people like me don't get to be where I am, but for Alcoholics Anonymous. Women who have come from the places I've come from don't get to show up for life as I get to show up today. And there, was, there were times in that first, the first two years for me when easily I could have picked up. Easily. Because you see, during my first two years, I was doing all the things that people do that make you want to drink. And I need you to know that it wasn't because I was experiencing the terrible twos. That's just for me. It wasn't about that. I almost drank when I was two years sober because I was unwilling to change my behavior. It's that simple. I was unwilling to do things differently than I had ever done them before. See, when I first got sober, I was, or even up until my second birthday, I was still hanging out in bars wondering why I always wanted to drink, you know? <laughs> it's, <laughs> go figure. I mean, I was drinking Perrier, of course, but I was still in a bar. You know, I was still sleeping with other people's husbands at two years sober, and I was still sleeping with other people's boyfriends wondering, wondering why I felt the way I felt. Just wondering. At two years sobriety, I was still wearing skirts or shorts or whatever you want to call them. They could have just been considered a sash. That was just about how short they were all the way up here. And I was wearing blouses that also could have been considered a sash that were open all the way down to here. And it's like I couldn't figure out how come people would look at me like they'd look at me in meetings. <laughs> I didn't get it. And at the same time, I didn't understand why I continued to feel the way I felt about myself. You know, when you act inappropriately, you feel inappropriately. It's that simple. I've come to realize that in this program. You know, sometimes I hear a couple of my sponsees talk about feeling guilt. And I always suggest to them to stop doing the behavior that makes them feel guilty, rather than just wanting to get rid of the guilt or put it on someone else. You stop feeling guilt when you stop doing some things. And I learned that here. I learned that here. I was really lucky when I was about 30 days sober, and today I feel lucky. But when I first found her as a sponsor, I can tell you I did not feel lucky. I, uh, I <laughs> My sponsor, Louise. Boy, but for the grace of God, you know, I might have never found her. When I was 30 days sober, I, I found this woman. Well, she, she was guided to me in Las Vegas. Her name was Louise R., and she's one of the greatest gifts that I've ever been given. And, you know, I'm very blessed in my recovery. I've lived in many places in sobriety, and I've, I'm a believer that you have a sponsor wherever you live because somebody like me who's easily off the beam needs somebody to keep the reins really close. But it's those special sponsors that I always hold on to. You know, Louise will always be a special part of my life. She'll always be my sponsor. She just lives in Vegas. Clara S. out of L.A. will always be my sponsor. But Clara lives in Los Angeles. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so now I have another sponsor where I am. But, you know, Louise was so incredible. She was just what the doctor ordered. She was one of those people who wouldn't take my stuff. And when people guided me to her, they knew that she was probably the only one that could deal with someone like me off the streets who was hip, slick, and cool, who had a mouth that could get out of anything. Louise had been there. She had been there. She wasn't easily perturbed by what I had to say, you know. And lucky me, lucky me. She told me 
just right off the bat, straightforward, Francine, this program is about changed behavior. It's about changed behavior. She said, this program teaches us how first to put down the drink and the chemicals. That's a changed behavior. But she said, then it doesn't end there. All the 12 steps are about changing who you are. Changing the person who called in here. And I did not want to hear about changing my behavior. All she ever talked about was action and gratitude and service and God. Things that were so alien to me, it, it was like I didn't want to hear it. Action. I mean, you know, I was the perpetual victim. It was like, it's, I don't want to have to get up and do anything. It's not my fault that I'm in this spot. Why should I have to do something to change my life? Why don't you change? Service. Service to me was about what you could give to me. That was service. And gratitude, again, you know, my life had been so difficult, so painful. What, what was there to be grateful for? And God, well, I was an agnostic when I got sober. So the last thing I wanted to hear was that G word. So she consistently talked about this stuff, and it's like I had a block. I had a block. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I used to sit on the side of the room with the people who used to tell me, honey, all you have to do is come in here and take up a seat, and you'll get this thing through osmosis. Well, <laughs> another surprise. <laughs> Thank God for Louise, who is one of those people who... Um, first explained to me what osmosis was, and for those of you that are new that maybe don't know, and in short terms, it simply means that if you sit next to somebody here and you rub up against them, you're going to catch their sobriety. It's absorption. It means it gets absorbed into your skin. Well, I like that idea, you know. <laughs> Again, I don't want to have to do too much work. My MO has always been, I wanted this much benefit, and I wanted to do about this much work. And that's how I've always functioned. That's probably why I had the profession I had years ago, you know, although I did a lot, just kind of different. Um, but, um, you know, Louise believed that it was not a mistake that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there was an entire chapter called Into Action. And she said to me, it wasn't an accident that in that chapter, you were going to find most of our 12 steps discussed, steps 5 through 11. And she said, even more than that, it's not a mistake that in that chapter you're going to find the promises. And that if you want what we have, this is her saying it to me, I needed to be willing to get into action. And that was just hard. It was a, it was a hard pill to swallow. Because again, I was wanting to play with the boys, other people's boys. And I wanted to you know, do all that inappropriate stuff that I had always done, mainly because I didn't know any other way to behave. I just didn't know. Louise believed that self-esteem comes from doing esteemable acts. That self-esteem comes from doing esteemable acts. She taught me how to speak, how to dress, how to act as a woman when I first got sober. And that was a tall order for anybody, let alone one woman. You know. And yet I can tell you that a lot of who I am today is because of that very basic, basic training I got when I was newly sober. I came in like a couple of the, the other speakers that shared. I came in with a mouth like a sailor. You know, I apologize if there are sailors in the room. But, uh, <laughs> somebody came up to me once when I said that, and she was so offended that she didn't hear anything else I said after that. My whole talk was a blank, but she remembered the sailor part. But my mouth was filthy. I mean, growing up in the streets of New York, I knew four-letter words very well. And, you know, I don't even know if it's because I didn't know any other words, because I had read a little when I was growing up. 
But I think what I found here was every time I cursed, people laughed. And see, I was so insecure and so needy and so desperately in, in need of your approval that if that was the kind of approval I got, it was better than nothing at all. And you know, Louise used to say to me, Francine, is that where you want to be? Is that where you want to be? And you know, it took a while for it to change for me, but one day at a time, I can honestly tell you, I don't curse one day at a time. Now that may seem Pollyanna-ish, and I know some of you are probably saying, oh my God, you know, but it's the truth. For me, one day at a time, I don't like how it sounds coming out of my mouth. And, it, and I learned how to do that in small pieces. First, Louise would have me reduce my curse content to 10 words in a sentence as opposed to 20, you know. <laughs> and then I would reduce it to five words and then maybe one word per sentence. And then maybe every other sentence had a curse word. And you know what? Again, changed behavior. <laughs> Willingness to change my behavior eventually got it to a point where I didn't want to hear myself say it. I just didn't want to hear myself say it. She also taught me how to dress when I came in here. Again, I dressed a little inappropriately. And she taught me how to dress appropriately for the occasion. She said, when you're on a beach, you wear a bikini. Not in an AA meeting, you know. <laughs> like, duh, you know. So I learned how to dress appropriately for the occasion, you know. It was little things like this, and it sounds kind of funny, and it sounds kind of, I don't know, a flip. But the point is, this, is my, this was my process. I have learned everything I've learned in this program in ba by taking baby steps. I've never been one that's been able to just jump over there and, and change it. I've had to take little tiny baby steps to get to the place where I want it to be. And um, when I was two years sober, as a result of the changes that were taking place internally, there started to be some major changes taking place on the outside. And you know, it's really a powerful testament to Alcoholics Anonymous that when you change your insides, your life expands. Your scope widens. Just all kinds of things start to happen. And as my attitude about myself started to change on the inside, I started to become a dreamer. I learned how to dream in Alcoholics Anonymous. I learned how to dream. I learned how to, excuse me, be stretched. And then I learned how to stretch myself just a little bit further with God's help. That's what I learned how to do here. I came in here without dreams. And you see, people who grew up on the side of the tracks like I did, dreams were not for me. Dreams were for those other guys. And yet a day at a time, Louise used to tell me again, self-esteem comes from doing esteemable acts. She said to me, Francine, if you want to use, if you don't want to move forward in your life and you want to use your being black as an excuse to not function in this world, she said, go for it. You can do that if you want. She said, if you want to use the fact that you're a girl for not moving ahead with your life, you can do that too. And she also said to me, if you want to use your past as an obstruction, as a reason why you can't take baby steps and change your life, go for it. You can do it anything you want. But she said, if you want to use the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to turn your life around, we'll help you. We've got 12 steps up here that tell you exactly how to do that. But she said, you've got to be willing to do the footwork. You've got to be willing to get up off your tush and stop blaming everybody else for where you are at. And I can tell you, probably the single most powerful thing that came out of my fourth step for me was the realization that I was no longer a victim. 
Well, I can tell you, even just saying that today kind of sends chills up my spine because I had such an investment in being a victim. And now, of course, we don't like that term. We've become much more sophisticated. So, you know, it comes out in other ways. But, boy, I tell you, blaming somebody else for why I can't do something was my M.O. It's my mother's fault. She broke me wrong. That's why I turned out like I did. <laughs> you know? It was my father's fault. He wasn't there. Therefore, look at me. It was all those men. They forced me to take all that money. I didn't want it. I really didn't want it. It was always somebody else's fault. And it was not until I became willing through this powerful woman's inspiration to take an honest look at where I was at did my life start to change. It wasn't until that point. Self-esteem comes from doing esteemable acts. When I was two years sober, I made a decision to uh, pursue a career that was so out of reach for me that the fact that I even had the nerve to dream this was, was about you, not about me. Not about me. I couldn't dream that far. I was just learning how to define the word dream. But at two years sober, I thought I wanted to do this thing. And, you know, most people laughed at me. Most people told me that, you know, for instance, easier because we don't want you to be disappointed. You know, I think you should just you know, try to do something that's a little easier for you, a little bit more manageable. And, you know, for years I thought that people were just jealous of me. I, for years I thought they just didn't want to see me succeed. And what I realized as time went by was that these people in Alcoholics Anonymous loved me so much. They absolutely loved me so much. That they were afraid that if I failed while I was on this journey, I might drink. And you see, they wanted me sober more than they wanted me to be doing whatever it was I wanted to be doing. But thank God for that sponsor, Louise. And there was another man in Las Vegas, Dick T. God bless him. They used to say to me, Francine, you can do anything you want. If you're willing to show up. And you know, I don't even know if they really believed in me. Sometimes I think they acted as if. And you know what, whatever it took, it didn't matter. If they acted as if it was really powerful. But they were my inspiration in the beginning when I didn't think I could do anything. And so when I was two years old, I got my GED. And uh, I was living in Las Vegas, and I, it's really funny, I used to, while I was studying for the GED, I was too ashamed to tell people that I had been a high school dropout. You know, I'll tell you, the alcoholism is a disease of perception. You know, it really is. Disease of perception. I was so ashamed to tell you guys I was a high school dropout. I used to lie and tell you that I had finished high school, that I had a couple years of college, and I know most of you knew that wasn't the truth. But, but you know what? You just acted as if you believed me. You acted as if. But when it came time for me to go back to school, I knew in my core that it was a lie, and I no longer wanted to live that lie. But I was too ashamed to tell you, so I bought this book, and I used to hide it underneath my bed when company would come. I would never let anybody see it. But I kept studying it, kept studying that book. And then I got my GED, and then I started college at UNLV, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And uh, I was 28 years old. 
It was so incredible. I couldn't believe I was back at school. So much has happened since then. I sometimes forget those little nuggets, those little moments that were so special that I was back in school. <laughs> I uh, did my first year at UNLV and then I moved back to New York City in 1982 to work my way through college. And I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous every single day. I worked full time and I went to school full time. And it's really important that I say that from the podium because all too often I come across newcomers between those very delicate years of one in five who stop going to meetings because they're in the right job, they have the right relationship, or they're back in school. And I can only say I'm so grateful for that sponsor who reminded me constantly that the only reason I was sitting in anybody's classroom was because of you. That's why I was there to begin with. And the other thing she reminded me of was that I had a responsibility to pass on a message of hope and inspiration to any newcomer who wanted to see what was possible in AA. And the only way I could be that inspiration is to be where you were. So I needed to consistently come to meetings. And I'm going to tell you, I hated it. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I went and I loved it. I hated being in meetings during that period because I was in school all day. I was working all day and I was exhausted. I did not want to sit in a meeting. But yet I dragged my body many a day. I worked my school schedule and my work schedule. Some, that's when I got into morning meetings. You know, it's amazing how things happen. And now my home group is a morning meeting. You know. But I kept showing up. I kept showing up. And thank God because, you know, every time I put some more insurance into my insurance policy, every time I went to meetings when I didn't want to, when I really needed you and that was to come, you were there for me. When I was ready, when I was ready to take my life at 16 years of sobriety, you were there for me because I consistently showed up at meetings when I didn't want to show up. Kept showing up. I worked my way through college and then in 1986, I graduated from college in New York and I moved down to Washington, D.C. to complete my education. And in 1989, I moved back to New York having graduated from one of the top law schools in this country. And I can tell you, people like me don't get to be where I am. But for Alcoholics Anonymous, I used to pay lawyers a lot of money. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> I used to pay them a lot of money to keep me out of jail. Unbelievable. Today I choose no longer to practice law. God has allowed me to expand my dream even more so and I must tell you for some people the fact that I don't practice anymore is a good thing <laughs> but I want to share something about the process of becoming a lawyer because I know that there are so many people in here who are like me who are dreamers it doesn't matter what the end result is it doesn't matter what you want to do with your life but I know there are people in here who've got that little passion that little flicker of of something that they want to do and they're afraid and you can fill in the reasons why one of the reasons very often people are afraid and they tell me that they're afraid to go for their dreams is because they're afraid to fail. They're afraid to fail. We're all afraid to fail. And you know, in all my life, I sat back on the sidelines judging the doers 
because it was easier to do that rather than to get in the game myself. So much easier to sit back and take your inventory, even if you stumbled, because I didn't have the guts to get in there. And the process for me of going back to school was really an awesome discovery about myself. I realized that I was made of more stuff than I thought. You know, I learned what courage was. I learned what discipline was about. I learned what it, what it was about to show up for myself, to be committed, to be focused on a goal, and to go for it. I um, sat at a New York bar on my 10th birthday, and it was a, it's one of those days today that will go down in my personal history book. You know, I graduated from Georgetown Law School, and then I, I just knew that I was ready to do this thing. I mean, I had a great education, great school, da-da-da-da-da, studied for the test. I failed the bar. I failed the bar. You know, and I really thought there was something wrong with that picture because I was 10 years old, but this was my 10th birthday. You know, and I had worked so hard to get to this point. There was really something wrong here. You know, I failed that exam, and it was the most devastating thing that could have happened to me. The most devastating. You know, and it was because of you guys in Alcoholics Anonymous that gave me the courage to take that test again. And you know what? I failed it again. <laughs> and I tell you, it doesn't get easy with long-term sobriety to fail exams. Maybe some of you have a dream in mind and you're afraid to go for it because you're afraid to fail. Well, I can tell you, I, I have a, one of the, the topics for one of my business talks today is failing to the top. Failing to the top. Because I'm a believer that you don't really get to be on the top of wherever it is you want to be until you've experienced going through some sort of disappointment. For me. I um, took the test again and I passed it and I practiced law in New York. And you know, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this next period except you have consistently shown me that my life is bigger and more than anything I could possibly imagine. Anything I could possibly imagine. Over the last four years, it has been just a, a really difficult period. Really two years. The last two years have been very different, just because I stuck through those two years before. I moved to California, and, <clears throat> you know, I know so many people that would never even move to another state because they'd have to take a bar exam. But you taught me to have courage. You taught me to, to get in the game. And, you know, I moved out to California without going through a long ordeal. I sat for that test more than I want to admit. And then what happened for me is at some point I realized I needed to let go. I needed to let go. I didn't know if I was letting go forever or if I was letting go just for that moment. But I needed to let go because I had become so concerned with getting through the California bar that it was totally, it was killing me. See, I had already reached the goal that I wanted to reach. I wanted to practice law. I did it. And I didn't even want to be a lawyer anymore. So when I moved to California, I had no other skills. And until I was able to be in a different place, I knew that's all I could do. And I made it my whole life. I made it my world. At 15 years of sobriety, I almost took my life because I was so consumed with this stuff. And when I had failed it for the last time, I knew I wasn't going to be able to move, take another step forward. I knew I couldn't do it. 
I had invested so much energy in that stupid exam. And then God just said, Francine, let go. Now, I have often said that if I ever take the test again, it will be a secret. You'll never, ever know. <laughs> so don't expect me to tell you now whether I have. <laughs> but what did come out of that two-year period where I was like, you know, it, it, it happened when I let go, really. The moment I let go, it's amazing what happens. You know, God just puts this stuff in your life that's so powerful. And over the last year and a half, I started to create the vision for my life that I really, really wanted. You know, I used to feel sometimes that there was um, a disconnect between me and AA and me and my work life because as a lawyer, I was constantly encouraging people to fight and to be hostile and to be angry and to hate each other. I was focused on the problem rather than the solution. And yet when I get to speak at AA, I get to talk about inspirational things and motivational things and I get to show people in the flesh how you can get from this point to this point and I realized I wanted my business life to be more like my AA life I didn't know how it was going to look all I knew is how it was going to feel and I knew it was going to feel like I was being of service all the time and for the last year a year ago a little over a year ago I started my own business which you know it's so amazing people think they say to me Oh, but you don't want to be a lawyer anymore, and yet all that legal stuff is what makes me a great businesswoman today. My business was incredible last year. You know, I get to take spiritual principles into corporate America. <laughs> what a novel concept, <laughs> you know. I get to do that. I get to speak to groups about being in a different place outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is what I get to do for a living. I get to do what I love for a living. Failing to the top is one of my topics. I get to do what I love most. I'm writing a book today that I've been working on for about six months. And you know what? Two years ago, that book was just a flicker in my, my thought, in my psyche. Today, it's becoming very much a reality. Very much a reality. A steamable axe. Who would have thought? You know, when I was really sober, I was invited to make a list of all the things I wanted out of my sobriety. And on that list, you would have found a litany of every single material thing I lost. You would have found fur coats and diamond rings and kitty cats and stereos. That's what you would have found. You would have never, ever found those intangibles that I so value the most today. You would have never found things like self-esteem. <laughs> never. And you know what, for me today, self-esteem is one of the things at the top of my list. And it's not the kind of self-esteem I used to to think with self-esteem. I used to think that esteem was being attached to the right man, having the right apartment, having the right fur coat, all that stuff. That was esteem for me, living in the right neighborhood. Well, I still live in the right neighborhood, thank God, but you know, it's not what makes me who I am. Today's self-esteem for me is my willingness to walk through fear. You know, every single time I do something that I'm afraid of doing, it's like a little check mark next to my name and likewise, I'm given the courage to then do something else I never thought I could do. Becoming a lawyer was like the catalyst for me to now live the kind of life that, that I think God really wants me to live. But I needed to go through that changing of my behavior to get me to a place where I had the confidence to say, yes, I can do anything I want to do today. That's what the esteem is about. On that list, you'd also find discipline. 
discipline. Discipline's a really nasty word in an AA meeting. I know. You know. The last thing we want to hear about is deferred gratification. You know. And yet, I know, I'm an alcoholic too. <laughs> and yet I must tell you, over the years I have learned how to be disciplined. It's not even a bad word for me anymore. I've learned how to be disciplined. I've learned that sometimes I have to just put one baby foot in front of the other at a time and just trust that I'm moving in the right direction. If I'm doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. And you know, sometimes I can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. During those two years when I kept struggling through that exam, I could not see a light at the end of the tunnel. And yet my baby feet kept walking. I kept showing up at meetings. It's interesting, those were the times when I was on an airplane every weekend traveling around the country. It's like God knew I needed to be carried during that period. It's like that story, Footprints. You know, those were the times when God carried me because I couldn't take care of myself during those two years. So God sent me to you and you carried me. So discipline for me has been a real gift. It's one of those things on my list. What else you find on that list today is courage. I am so courageous. And yet I am the most scaredy cat person you'll ever meet in your whole life. You know, I wake up in the morning afraid, afraid of most. I was afraid this morning to go running with Wayne. I hadn't been running in a while because in Marin, it is so bad. Talk about El Nino. It rained. It's been raining for like a month. And I was so grateful to be here in Texas where it was sunny at least. But I was afraid because I hadn't run in a long time. And, you know, I was, I was afraid that he, you know, he'd be faster than me and I'd feel inadequate. All that stuff that goes in our brains is so sick. It is so sick. I, was, I almost wasn't going to show. But you know what? The good thing is I made a commitment to meet him at 6.30 and I didn't have his phone number to call him. So... <laughs> so I showed up for the meeting, you know. But today I am courageous, and the thing that makes me courageous really is God. By myself, I can't do it. I can't do anything. But with God's courage, with God behind me, it's like with God behind me and in me and through me, I get to do things I never thought I could do. Ever thought I could do. I mean, it's really kind of a surprise that part of what I do for profession today is speak because I'm so afraid of speaking. And yet, you know, God gives me the courage to, to come from in here. And no, that's where the connection lies. Not up here, but in here. When I can connect from you, with you right here, it's powerful. When I'm up in my head, it's not. It's not. What you also find on that list today is, is a gift of my mom. And, um, you know, I know that's another touchy area in an AA meeting, and I know Many of us come in hating our parents, and we are where we need to be. Let me just say that. We are all where we are at, and it's perfectly fine. I'm grateful for the people who listened to me bash my mother when I first got sober. I'm grateful for the examples of people bashing their mothers when I first got sober, because I realized I wasn't alone, and that was so important for someone like me. But I am also grateful for the, for the men and the women who showed me by example how to get past that. I am grateful for the men and women who showed me what it was like to be willing to have healthy, healing relationships. My mom is one of the greatest gifts that you've given me in my sobriety. I love my mother so much today. And yet this is a woman who tried to put me away, and for good reason, you know. She's a woman who, after I'd come from that therapist from years ago, I'd call my mother up on the telephone and tell her how it was all her fault, you know. 
um, one day at a time. I get to understand that my mom really did the best she could with what she had. And I mean, I genuinely believe that right here. I'm a really good daughter today. And we don't always get along. I don't want you to think that this is like a rosy Pollyanna type relationship. She's human and so am I. But today, just like I want her to accept that I'm human, I get to also accept that she's human. That's part of the deal. And lastly, what you find on that list is the gift of love. Real powerful gift for me because I came in hating every single person in the room. I hated men, I hated women, and that doesn't leave too many people in between, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, boy. I, and, you know, I usually hated you for the 2% of the things that separate me from you. And, and this is, again, my opinion is everything I share up here. I believe there are only 2% of the things that make me different from you. You see, I believe if this room were dark and there were literally no light, I would only connect with your spirit. I wouldn't connect with the fact that you're white or black or Hispanic or Asian. I wouldn't connect with the fact that your religion might be different or that you don't believe in God. I wouldn't be able to even connect with the fact of who you choose to sleep with. I would only be able to connect with your spirit. And for me, Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me that I'd be really hard-pressed to tell you that I'm genuinely working a 12-step program if I hate anybody for the color of their skin or for their religious choices or for their sexual preferences, for me. If I'm working this program like you taught me to work it, that means I get past that. doesn't mean I have to like everyone in the room, but it means that I don't not like them because of that 2% of the things that make me different from them. You know, and it's interesting, I hated so many people that today part of my business is that I get to do diversity training. I mean, it's like God has such a sense of humor, you know. <laughs> I do team building and diversity training in corporations, and I get to work through that healing, you know, myself. I, and I'm still living through it. It's so powerful. What a sense of humor. Another sense of humor that I believe God has, and this is, this is also part of the love for me, is I'm getting married in May. And one of my sponsees often goes around saying that I am the patron saint of women over 40 who were not willing to settle. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, the big thing about that is this is my first marriage. This is my, uh, 45 years old, I'm getting married for the first time. I mean, <laughs> the truth is it's hard to be married when the man you're dating is married, so. <laughs> Although I have to tell you, I have not been with a married man since I've been two years sober. So truly, you guys do not have to worry about me. <laughs> but the funny part of this is the man that I married is not the man I would have necessarily chosen. Uh, number one, he's, um, he's Jewish from the Bronx, and I tried to get as far away from the Bronx when I left there years ago as I possibly could, and I had to come all the way to Marin County to meet him. And he's a therapist. Now... <laughs> That's the biggest joke. I'm not. I don't do therapy. <laughs> you know, when I got sober, that's when that ended. And it's like God said, okay, Francine, I'm going to show you who's really in control. I fall in love with this man who's a therapist. So we're getting married in May, and it's so cool. You know, it's so cool. You've given me so much. Given me so much. Never in my lifetime will I ever be able to repay you for all the things you've given me. Ever. I try. 
I stay in service constantly. But no matter how much I give back, I can never, ever give enough. Because what you've given me is, it goes so far beyond teaching me how to not drink and not use. In closing, I'd like to read something from AA-approved literature. Just in <laughs> I know there's some purists sitting in the room. I know, I can smell you guys. <laughs> this is one of my most favorite passages, and I generally like to close my talk with this, and it's on page four, and As Bill Sees It, which is one of my most favorite books in this program. I'm so grateful to Louise for really, really getting me into the books early on. And, uh, and I, pass my, I pass this on to my sponsors as well. And Okay, this book is a special one because Louise had me read this book every day, all day, because I was so angry all the time. And I like to say it was because my face was in a pissed off position. You know, but <laughs> I was always mad at somebody or something. So she had me read everything in this wonderful book under anger and resentment. And then she had me read everything in here under gratitude and faith. And it's amazing the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and willingness. Willingness, which I got from Alcoholics Anonymous. This is entitled, Can We Choose? We must never be blinded by the futile philosophy that we are just the hapless victims of our inheritance, of our life experience, and of our surroundings. That these are the sole forces that make our decisions for us. This is not the road to freedom. We have to believe that we can really choose. And that's what you've given me in 18 and a half years of sobriety. You've given me the gift of choice. You've taught me that it doesn't matter where I've come from. It doesn't matter what color my skin is. It doesn't matter whether I believe in God or I don't believe in God. You've taught me that the only thing that matters in the overall scheme of things is where I'm headed and what I do, what I make of this gift that you've given me. That's what matters. You've taught me that it's not enough for me to sit in an AA meeting and to be loving and kind. It's about what I do with it out there. How do I treat people in traffic? How do I treat people on the line in the supermarket? How do I treat my spouse at home? That's where I really live this program. Do I treat him like a, a piece of nothing while I treat all of you, you know, like angels? I have a choice today. And you've given me that choice. And for that, I am so grateful. Thank you for my sobriety. <laughs>